Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. As we approach our time in the Word of God this morning, we are going to look at the beginning of the life of Samson. Samson's the last judge in this book. And then in future weeks, although the weeks are narrowing down, we're going to look at the prologue of Judges. If you didn't know, the, the stories about the Judges actually begins a couple of chapters into the book of Judges, and it ends in chapter 16, and then 17 through 21 is really a prologue to the stories, the accounts of the Judges. We're going to hear more probably on the life of Samson next week. Jordan is, Pastor Jordan is going to be preaching, and we will conclude our time in three weeks on August 21st in the book of Judges, because August 28th is our what? Birthday celebration weekend. We're going to have a special focus that weekend. So we're going to conclude this series on August 21st. By this point, you should all be aware that Judges is an account of Israel spiraling downward. The country that once came in as a united group walking in covenant with the Lord to conquer and to settle and to cultivate the land that God had promised to give to their great-great-grandfather Abraham has descended into bitter factions and backbiting and skirmishing, skirmishes, and even civil war with each other. They've also gone from being those that hold covenant with God to being covenant breakers with God. They've embraced the false gods of the land which they were supposed to conquer. They've become idolaters, chasing after the pleasures and the loves of the world. That's really the the chapter-to-chapter narrative of the book of Judges. Throughout the book, one of the things I want to highlight before we get into our passage this morning, which is going to be chapter 13, is that Really, the judges in the book, the judges were God's deliverers sent to Israel to deliver them from their oppressors. They were oppressed because of their sin. So God has sent deliverers throughout the book of Judges. And really, those judges follow the trend of the people. What do I mean by that? Well, there are six major judges, six minor judges. We've covered some of most of the majors Um, And we've skipped over some of the minors, and really the designation of minor versus major has only to do with the fact that the major ones actually tell about those lives, whereas the minor judges, it's like a one-liner. And this guy judged Israel for seven years, and then they're on to the next. So these judges really follow the trend of the people in terms of this downward spiral. We started with a high note with Othniel back in May. He was brave and godly, and he was a faithful young man who was willing to go and attack the enemy and attack a fortified city by faith in order to win for himself Caleb's daughter. Remember Caleb, that great, faithful man of God that came in with with Joshua. So Othniel was a great pillar of faith. Then we worked through Deborah, and we worked through Gideon. Gideon had some issues and some doubting, and 
Gideon said, no, I won't become the king, but then he sort of lived like he was a king and, and seems to have had a heart that was sort of drawn toward a love of money in his later years. He led Israel into idolatry by, by setting up a, a shrine, and the whole city went and worshipped there. But as we go on, we talked about Jephthah last week, and, and I hope that you've noticed that the later judges don't seem to have the level of godly faithfulness that the former ones did. Now, God uses them all to accomplish his purposes for his kingdom. But while the first few were examples of faithfulness and upright character, the last judges that are used seem to be used sort of in spite of themselves. These are guys that are really messy, and you can see the messes right up on the surface. And so I say this because we're getting into the last judge, Samson, We've got a few chapters given to him, and he is used by God. We're told that we'll read that the Holy Spirit comes upon Samson. And yet, Samson is troubled in many ways and is sort of the inverse of many of the godly, faithful characteristics that we saw at the beginning of the book. And so I hope you will notice that as we go along. One more thing before we read chapter 13 together. That is, we're bypassing chapter 12 this go-around. And we are going to bypass it, but I do want to highlight just the last few verses of chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you could turn there. I want to highlight the three minor judges that are tucked away in the last couple of verses of that chapter. The first is a guy named Ibzan. The second is a guy named Elon. And the third is Abdon. And I just want to share just a couple of facts about these men as we seek to be propelled then into chapter 13. Ibzan came right after Jephthah. We're told that he had 30 sons and daughters. And again, we have a judge who apparently, 60 children, is married to multiple women against God's design. Again, I'm, I'm highlighting the fact that these judges are on a, on a downward trend here. So this is the reason I highlight these guys. So he's, he's got 60 children. He's married to multiple women. But the fact that has even more emphasis at the end of 12 is that Ibzan sent all of his sons and all of his daughters to marry those that were outside. Now, we aren't told exactly who these outsiders were. At best, this minor judge is using his, his position to create a familial power base with marriages, uh, marriage alliances throughout Israel. And at worst, because of the emphasis and how many times it says outsiders, I tend to think that it could be actually meaning that he was propagating marriages with those outside of Israel, that he was actually allowing his sons and his daughters to intermarry with those outside of Israel. It had been done already in the book. God's people, though, were not to intermarry with those outside of the family of Israel. This is, this is something we've already seen in Judges, but it's something that God's judges should not have participated in. Other than this fact, we're told that he judged Israel for seven years and then he died. So that's the first guy that came after Jephthah. Then there was this guy named Elon, and we aren't told anything about him other than the fact that he judged for 10 years. Classic example of a minor judge. One-liner. Then you have the third minor judge after Jephthah. His name was Abdon. We're told that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode around the city on donkeys. And the implication here is that he lived like a king. 
as Gideon had done in chapter 8. Seating all his sons and all of his grandsons on donkeys, which were the, the, what, the, what the monarchs, the kings, if you read 1 Kings, if you read through Zechariah, that was how the kings rode. Sitting all of his sons and all of his donkeys on, uh, <laughs> sitting all of his sons and all of his grandsons on donkeys gives us the impression that he's sort of trying to set up a dynasty as others had already done. You think about Abimelech, Gideon's son by a prostitute trying to set himself up to rule. You think of Gideon himself even denying formal kingship, but certainly living for money and for power and for influence. So there are very few details given to us about those three judges. That's the fastest we've covered any judge in the whole summer, isn't it? Three done in the first 10 minutes. There's one detail that's strikingly left out from these judges. What is it? What's not there? What's been there with every other judge thus far, but not here anymore? Well, what's not there is that none of them, it's not recorded that any of those three did any saving of Israel, is it? The very thing that God had supplied judges to do throughout the whole book is notably absent here. None of these three judges, there's no account of them saving Israel. It seems to be just a furthering of what we saw in Jephthah, a judge who tried to relate to God using some of the same tactics that might have been used with, with pagan gods. There's this downward spiral in the people, and there's this downward trajectory with the judges. This is where the nation of Israel is as we today turn and start looking at our last judge, Samson. So if you're willing and able, please stand with me. We're going to read chapter 13 together. Chapter 13, 1 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is a longer period than many times in the book of Judges thus far. Often it was a shorter time period. Again, this downward spiral. 40 years, as long as Saul's reign, as long as David's reign, 40 years into the hands of the Philistines. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive. And give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he, me- nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. 
God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose, and he followed his wife. And when he had come to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to, spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we might prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask me my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about, when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that, the angel, that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. And that's where I'm ending this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would use this text to change our hearts, to reform our actions, our minds. I pray that we would uh, be faithful to you as we see the faithful, the, the simple straightforward faithfulness, especially in Manoah's wife in this passage. Pray that we would live that way. Father, I pray that we would trust you to be the source of our strength in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I brought up those three judges because I wanted to highlight the fact that these judges are tracing with the people of Israel, in this downward trajectory. But I also wanted you to be able to see that at the beginning of this chapter, God goes into chapter 13 with a contrast. There is a contrast, a a pretty sharp, hard contrast between the minor judges that we aren't really told anything about beyond the fact that they had, two of them, very large numbers of offspring, And this guy named Manoah and his wife, who we don't know her name, 
and the fact that they are barren, that she cannot have a child. She's barren. Every time it says it, it says it twice. She was barren and she had no children. She was barren and she had no children. Right? He's made the point to us. In just a couple of verses, we've gone from the, the minor judges who have lots of children to a barren woman and her husband that don't have any children. Just like Sarah, just like Rebecca, just like Rachel, just like Hannah, all of these really pointing to Mary, who wasn't married and conceived. This unnamed woman was unable to have children. And we're told, verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren, you have born no children. Okay, we get that. You shall conceive and you shall bear a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, what did it mean to be a Nazarite? What was a Nazarite? What was it all about? Well, Nazarite vows had gone back a long time. And basically, the, the cliff notes on being a Nazarite, on, on the word, even the word Nazarite, goes back to the Hebrew to a word that means to separate. Years before, God had spoken to Moses, and he had given him specific instructions with regard to these Nazarite vows, these vows of separation, and we would find that, if you wanted to, in Numbers chapter 6. And essentially, if you read Numbers chapter 6, like 1 through 20-ish, that passage presents to us three distinguishing features of a Nazarite vow, what, what being a Nazarite would imply for you. And those three things would be abstaining from anything related to grapes or to alcohol, refraining from cutting one's hair, and avoiding any dead bodies, even those of family members. Those are the three things that Nazarites were to do, or those were the three prohibitions of a Nazarite, things you had to refrain from or abstain from doing. Numbers chapter 6 also details the steps for being released from a Nazarite vow. After bringing the prescribed offerings, the Nazarite would shave his or her head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they would burn the hair that they had shaved, and the priest would then offer a wave offering, and the Nazarite would be released from their vow. What is the purpose of the vow in the first place? Why does it matter? Why would somebody take on this mode of life for a time. The purpose of the Nazarite vow was to ask God for special help during a crucial time, most often in Scripture. It was a sign that you were looking to God with great intensity and focus. Keeping one's hair uncut and refraining from the fruit of the vine were ways of showing that you were in training toward a goal. By refraining from touching a dead body, you were adopting the rules for ceremonial cleanliness that the priests abided by. They weren't allowed to touch anything dead because they were at work in God's house every single day. So you were adopting some of these things and taking these things on. As the Hebrew suggests, 
men and women would live in a way that even further separated them from even the other Israelites for the sake of seeking the presence of God, the power of God in your life in a very special way for a specific purpose. This is what we learn about Nazarite vow from studying the Old Testament. Now, by the grace of God, we have a church that is bursting with young people with all sorts of little growing boys and girls. If you're a guest, don't pretend you haven't noticed. All right, we see you. You see us. (laughs) It's one of the striking features of our church, and yet it's not enough to be given treasure by God. We must steward it well. We aren't to raise our kids to, to be Nazarites per se, but we are to raise our children in such a way that they are holy. And, and holy, to be holy, means to be set apart from the world. They are to be set apart. They are to be called to separateness from worldliness and, from, and to godliness. And while we don't see anybody in the New Testament beyond John the Baptist commit themselves to a Nazarite vow, the motivation for the vow, the motivation to separate yourself in a very specific way to seek God is something that all of us should want for our children, isn't it? So before we get into the details of Samson's life, I want to take this Sunday and I want to talk to the parents. And of course, all these things, I'm directing these thoughts to parents. Um, There are those of you here that aren't parents biologically. All of these things apply to us at various levels. But I want to speak to us as parents today. And I want to draw out from this chapter just a few lessons from the text about parenting our children. The Bible says unequivocally that children are a blessing. But they also need to be raised to be a blessing rather than a curse. Children can be a curse. Read Proverbs. And this means that if we're to raise children to continue in them being a blessing to us and to this church and to Toledo, a blessing in the work of building the kingdom of God, we must parent them faithfully. We must resist the temptation to be led on in our parenting, following whatever impulses naturally come upon us. We could say doing whatever is right in our own eyes. We have to resist the urge to do what we see being done around us or to to do just better than what we see around us on the playground, at the park, or at the library, or at the school. We can't be led by the picture-perfect blogs online either. We aren't to put our stock in these things. We are to be governed and directed by God's Word. And so this morning, we're going to just pull three simple points about parenting faithful, godly children from the text. All right, you with me? With me? All right, thanks. First, the first lesson. It should not escape our notice that the angel of the Lord came to tell Manoah's wife that her son would be a Nazarite. But then immediately, what does he do? As soon as he says that she'll conceive, 
he censors her regarding the things pertaining to wine, strong drink, and to those things unclean. Verse 4. But why? It's not as if this angel was committing her to be a Nazarite. It's not like she had implicated herself. Why does the angel, when he comes to this faithful godly lady, require her to abstain in these ways? We're told in verse 5, because behold, you will, shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And it is clear from Numbers chapter 6 that the Nazarite vow was made voluntarily, typically, and for a definite period of time. It wasn't a lifelong endeavor, but Samson was being born into, the Nazarite, into a Nazarite state involuntarily, and he was to stay a Nazarite all the days of his life. His mother was not to drink wine or to eat anything unclean or to touch anything unclean because the vow started immediately when Samson was in the womb. What she ate, what she drank, Samson in utero would also eat and drink. And this is why she had to change the way in which she lived. What she ate, what she drank, what she touched. Here is a parenting principle that we cannot afford to miss, and this is it. The things that you choose to feed yourself on will nourish your children. It's a rule of life that the things that a father and a mother love will be the things that the children love, whether it's flying kites, or whether it's tearing apart electronics and rebuilding them. It's natural for children to be drawn to the things that their parents enjoy, especially in a good home. If you say, you may have an objection, something that doesn't fit that mold. Oftentimes, it's, the, it's actually the bad homes, the negative examples where the children reject and want to be away from all the things their parents loved. So that doesn't work for you. This means that in my family, it should be no surprise that my children enjoy music. Why? Well, because I enjoy it. There are other families here with other hobbies and even more particular ones. There's a, at least one, maybe two families here where the dad is working on a book and guess what? What's the middle-aged son doing? Working on a comic. No, working on a book of his own, right? Very peculiar, strange people we have in this church. No, but I'm just pointing it out. What an what a interesting thing. How many... Middle schoolers are working on a serious book. Well, it's because he shares the love, the same loves that his father does. The things you feed on nourish your children. God built that even into how we see children being designed and, and nourished before and after they're born. It's amazing. And it serves as a truth for all of life. It can be a wonderful thing, but it can be a harmful thing if you do not feed on the right things. Fathers and mothers, it is vital that you feed on the right things. And I'm not actually talking here about physical feeding. Honestly, I think that there's often an emphasis on things like physical health because it's so easy to achieve in comparison with many of the other things in life. The reality is that physical health goals, whatever you eat or how you exercise or do this or that, are so easy. And people often will use health goals to give them a cause that they can have success in rather than 
fight the things that are really hard rather than feeding on the things that really take work, keeping themselves unstained from the world, visiting the orphans and the widows, all the things that don't stroke your pride or allow you to feel good about yourself. We need to feed on the right things. You need to feed on the right entertainment, the right music, the right friendships, the right motivations, the right approvals, recognizing that like Manoah's wife, we are nurturing children on all of those same things, whether we know it or not, or whether we're cognizant of it or not. What's interesting is that though even at the time, Manoah's wife probably knew that she would be transferring uh, nutrients and food to the child growing within them. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious. We didn't have the technological capabilities of scanning and ultrasounds and seeing how all of that works. It wasn't obvious. And the same is true with our children. We also, we think that we can indulge in things, many things which are bad, and at the same time stand guard against those things in our children. And it's not true. It doesn't happen. Forget it. It, it, that doesn't work. We give ourselves a pass on things that we wouldn't accept in our own children, often only because we carry out those same things with more tact or maturity, right? We dress it up different. Teenagers don't, often don't know when to keep their mouth shut, even when it's good for them, so they'll say things that we think but don't say. You understand what I'm saying? We think that because we're more mature about it, we're more sophisticated in the way that we do it. Or because it's not outwardly shameful. Like, you ever have a child say something that embarrasses you? You realize you have those same thoughts, they just don't come out of your mouth, right? For all those reasons, we think that it's better. That what we're feeding and allowing into us is, is, is better. We can, we, can, we can leave that alone, but we've got to try and drive this out in our child. And there's th- those two things, what we allow into us and what we see in our children, what our children are nurtured by, are, are intrinsically just bound together. We can't separate it. We can't live being captivated and nourished by our phones. It's something I just so striking with little kids. You know, you, that's an easy one. Just super easy to see because what they see you doing, they just, they go to as well. And it's a living testimony against you walking through the living room. We can't live being captivated by our, our lusts. We cannot live being captivated by our own vanity, our own image, or the love of money, the love of ourself, without it affecting, and more than affecting, nurturing our children. The things that you feed on nourish your children. What we allow into us flows into them as well. Often we pretend that this isn't the case, but we can't escape it. It's how we've been created. And if I may take this one step further, while the angel commanded this manner of living in abstinence to Manoah's wife for at least nine months while uh, Samson was in her womb, more likely maybe even a, a year or two years after that as she nursed Samson, That was the extent of her having to change her life for Samson's vow. 
Samson was affected by this nurturing bit for the rest of his existence. I say this because by it, we learn that what parents do in part, children will do in full. That's my analogy, you know. She did it for a little while, but Samson had to do it for her whole, whole lifetime. So bear with me here. This is true. We've already seen that. This is the, and this is, and is, is essentially the story of Judges, isn't it? We started by saying it's a downward spiral. What the first generation did, the second generation did worse. But we could go outside Judges. Okay, we're tired of Judges. Give us something else. Well, let's go over to Samuel. And we get the story of Eli. And Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were pathetic. They were horrible. They served in the temple. And they were spoiled brats. And we're told that they would overindulge in all the good portions of meat. That there would be little, there was food that would be brought to the temple, given to the Lord. And they were rightfully able to eat from it. But they were spoiled brats, and they overindulged themselves. And guess what? Their overindulgence didn't just pertain to food. It also pertained to women. Because we're told that often they would have sexual relations with the women that would come to the temple. So that's the kind of character I'm talking about. Now, Eli was godly in many respects, but he was also a troubling figure as well. He didn't correct his sons. He didn't cast them out of their work in the temple. But one of the interesting details that illustrates the point that what a father was willing to give himself to, the children will often take much further, is found at the end of Eli's life when he hears that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have been struck down dead by God because God judged them because he was unwilling to, okay? We're told what? It's one of these stories that you just, you have to read and study with your family. It's hilarious and sad. What are we told about Eli? How did he die? He fell backwards. I'm seeing some of you guys motion it. He fell backwards out of his chair in shock and broke his neck and died because what, what was, what are we told about him? He was fat. He was fat. Okay. Is dad overindulging? Apparently. Are the sons overindulging and taking it much further and into many worse realms than the father did? Apparently. We see it with David too. We're told that King David had, I think there's eight, I was never good at math, eight, <laughs> eight sons. Uh, I'm sorry, eight wives. Actually, the scripture says he had many wives, many wives, but we're told the names of eight of them specifically. What do we see with Solomon? How many wives did Solomon have? 700 wives, 300 concubines, again and again, and we could, go, we could keep going. Throughout scripture, there is this principle that what a father gives himself to in little, where a father doesn't discipline himself, where a father doesn't decide he's going to pursue faithfulness, he's going to pursue fatness, a son goes further. That's a warning to us. That's a warning to us. As parents, we need to recognize that what we feed on will nurture our children. Even what we nibble on will be indulged in by our children. This is a good reason not to boast in license. We all have license to do certain things. The scripture speaks of it. But there is a whole lot of things in life that aren't a matter of sin or not sin, but wisdom and foolishness. So parents, listen to me. This is a good reminder not to indulge in something just because you can. It's a good reason to quietly deny yourself things that you could be rightfully entitled to without it being wrong, 
for their sake, realizing that what you do in part, you run the risk of them giving themselves to fully and even more so. Remember that Jesus quietly denied himself certain things for the sake of indulging himself on other things. I was reminded, I was thinking about this, I was reminded of him at the, at the well with the Samaritan woman in John 4, and we read that the disciples come back to Jesus, they had been in the, in the city, and they come back to him, and they find Jesus at the well, and they say to him, Rabbi, eat, eat, they've brought him something to eat, and he says to them, I have food that you don't know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, what? No one brought him anything to eat. What does he mean? He has food that we don't know about. Jesus said to him, the food that I have is to do the will of my Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. The things that we indulge in are contagious. The things we feed on will nurture our children. That's why it's important that we feed on the right things. You see it with Paul in writing to Timothy. He urges him to have nothing to do with speculations and philosophies of the world and old wives' tales, but instead to work hard and to be diligent in the study of the Scripture and his teaching. He's warning Timothy about what to feed on as a young pastor and what not to feed on. It's, it's there all, all throughout Scripture. The things that you feed on nourish your children. Okay, first lesson. Second lesson. It should not escape our notice that the angel of the Lord did prescribe for Samson some very specific rules to follow if he was to honor God in his life. Hear this, hear this. There should be very specific rules that you and expectations that you have for your children. If you are a father, if you are a mother, you need to have very specific rules and expectations. It's a powerful and significant fact that even before sin entered the world, there was both expectation and prohibition. In a perfect world, Sinless world. God had expectations for Adam. God was to cultivate and tend the garden. Then he was going to work his way outward from there and conquer the entire world. There was also the prohibition, the thou shalt not, against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was in a perfect world without sin at this point. This is the world as God had initially intended it. What makes you think that you help your children by tempering your expectations or by softening your prohibitions, the things that you say no to. Some parents, mothers and fathers, make a virtue out of never saying no to their children ever. Redirection, always. What makes you think you're helping your children? Rules, expectations, prohibitions are necessary and good. Do not be apologetic or mamby-pamby about the rules that you have established and enforced in your home. Remember that God called on Samson to live by Nazarite vows and that God called on him to live that way through the teaching and the instruction of his parents. The little detail that you might have noticed at the end of the story, it says that Manoah and his wife never saw the angel of the Lord again. You notice that? Never again. Now the Holy Spirit does come upon Samson, but who is the, who's the mouthpiece of God instructing Samson in all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots pertaining to the vows that God had placed on him? It was his parents, wasn't it? It's no different for you. You may not have had a special revelation of God to you, but we have it in his word. He's given you it, and he calls on you to be the one to enforce 
his, the things that your children shall live for and the things that they will not live for. It isn't uncommon for me to talk with fathers who feel guilty for enforcing rules where there isn't a chapter and verse in the Bible to back them up. Like there needs to be a thou shalt not color on the wall or thou shalt not be annoying to your siblings or thou shalt not jump on the sofa in order to make it an enforceable rule. Parents, fathers, it is your prerogative given by God to lead your homes. This means that there will be certain rules that will be universal because they are our Heavenly Father's rules. The Ten Commandments and extrapolations from the commandments and the commandments of Christ, they're all throughout Scripture. But there are also specific rules and expectations in my home that you don't employ in yours and vice versa. And these rules are good and necessary. These rules and expectations are how we teach our children about God's authority at a young age. It's how we are God to our children as, as, as God amazingly said to Moses in Exodus 4, he says, you are to be as God to the people. That's a it's the same thing. We are to teach our children the love and the fear and the holiness of God through our interactions with them from a very young age, from the time that they're born. And we can do this wholeheartedly and without fear or second guessing so long as we do a couple things, submit ourselves sincerely to do the same thing. So no double standards, and we do fail, but we don't live for a double standard. And so long as we don't elevate those secondary rules or those preferential things in our life to the place of primary rules. This can lead to all sorts of bad stuff when we do it. It does happen. It's not the focus of this sermon. Don't do it. Um, But the improper use of a good thing does not render the, the proper use of the thing wrong or even unwise. So yesterday, Micaiah brought me a shotgun shell loaded, and um, I don't have a shotgun. I don't remember where we got it, but, and for a very long time, he just wanted to, like, dissect it, right? And something in my mind says, that's not a totally safe thing to do, you know? Especially when he was talking about a hammer and that little pin on the backside, you know, to see if we, so he said, you know, can I, can I cut the end off, and I'm thinking, I don't, I, I barely even ever shot a gun, honestly. I don't know how much force it takes to make that thing go in the back of it, spark or whatever. So I said, sure, you can cut it open, but don't use, you know, a circular saw, don't use anything like that. Use like a, a hacksaw, right? Something with, he can go slowly with and cut. And then he had, but I think before that, he had the idea of, of shooting the end pin with his BB gun. He said, can I shoot the end pin with my BB gun? Oh, no, it was after that. He took the BBs out and then, then asked if he could try and cause the, the black powder to blow with, by shooting the end of it with his BB gun. And I said, sure. But you've got to be a long way away. So he didn't end up being, he wasn't able to do it. Okay, <laughs> there's some very improper use of a shotgun shell happening at my house yesterday, right? It doesn't render the right use bad, right? It doesn't render, there is a proper use. And Micaiah's bad use or unintended, what it's unintended for, doesn't render the proper use of a shotgun in bird hunting season or whatever you hunt with a shotgun improper. So one, the things you feed on will nourish your children. Two, specific rules and expectations are good and helpful. Three, we're going to end with this. The third thing we must remember is that there's more to rules in Christian parenting. Rules are not enough. 
And this may seem like it's maybe at variance with our second point, but it's not at all. They function in perfect harmony and they flow together. Where is this scene in the text? Well, it's smack dab in the middle of it. I'm going to take you through it. This chapter is a genius narrative, and it really is a funny story. The dialogue in chapter 13. First, you have the angel of the Lord appearing to Manoah's wife. And he first reveals to her that she's going to have a child, and then second, instructs her on what implications, uh, what implications this motherhood is going to have in her life. She runs home. She's excited. She tells her husband what, what it, she's heard. And upon hearing this, Manoah calls out to the Lord. He prays. He says, please teach us. Uh, please let the man whom you have sent come again that he might teach us what to do for the boy who's to be born. Now, wait a second. Track with me. God has just told, very specifically, the wife of Manoah, what to do with this boy. Manoah prays and says, send that guy again because I want to know, I want, he needs to teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. This is important to note. Manoah wants the man of God to come back with more details, more granularity, more specificity, and instruct him on all what this means, all right? This past year, I had the extremely excruciating experience of buying a miniature off-brand Lego set. And it's incredibly cool. They're, they, they look like all the state capitol buildings, like the buildings downtown D.C., right? So the White House. And it's incredibly cool. But the infuriating thing about this set was that the instructions were bad. It was like, you know, missing whole pages and sections. And the, I mean, it was just, it, it was worse than putting together a 2,000-piece puzzle. I mean... It was excruciatingly painful because we didn't have the instructions that we needed. I want better instructions for off-brand Legos, all right? Manoah wanted better instructions from the angel of the Lord with regard to how he was supposed to raise his son. Same thing. Manoah wanted more details, more rules. He wanted better instructions. So he prays and God answers his prayer in verse 9. The angel appeared again to the woman. Very funny thing, all right? She's out in the field Without her husband, that's mentioned, the angel comes back once again. So she runs to get Manoah. Manoah runs back with her, and he greets the angel of the Lord, and he finally gets to ask his question. When your words come to pass, when this happens, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? He wants better instructions. He wants more detail. And he gets stuffed. Isn't that funny? I mean, it just gets totally stuffed. Let the woman pay attention to what I've already said. I mean, isn't that funny? I think it's funny. He totally ignores Manoah's request. He repeats what he had said to the woman, but he even channels what he's saying to the woman. Let her pay attention to what I've already said. Manoah doesn't give up that easily, so he keeps persisting. He offers food, and then he demands the messenger's name, but three times in a row, it's, it's really fascinating. He gets stuffed. Three times. He wants to know how to train the boy. He wants better instructions. He wants the guy to sit down and eat with him. And he wants to know the guy's name. No, no, and no are the replies from the angel, essentially. The angel of the Lord replies to the last one. And he says, why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Why do you ask me my name? Why would the angel of the Lord, why would if he returned if he had no new information to give? Manoah prayed for help, and that help was apparently refused, but in fact, Manoah did get the help he needed, but not in the form he was asking for. 
He wanted to know what is to be the rule for this child's life and work. He wanted more regulations. He wanted more instructions. Instead, God gave Manoah a revelation about who he was. Why do you ask me my name, seeing that it's wonderful? Or incomprehensible. It's another translation. This is our third point. Rules are good and needed if we are to raise generations faithfully, but they are not enough on their own. Our kids must know God. Not just his name. They must know God. The angel of the Lord had had an expectation that Manoah and his wife would see his glory and his wonder. Why do you ask me my name? Seeing that it's wonderful. They must know God's character. They must be overwhelmed by his glory. But for them to start having a sense of these things, they must see us knowing it and living within it, living in line with his character ourselves. They must see us living humbly by faith under the overwhelming incomprehensibility of God, but by faith and trust. The angel of the Lord is likely the son of God and is in the Old Testament. And his name, he says, is beyond understanding. It's too wonderful for a human to grasp. This points Manoah to his God's glory. Then the Lord himself did an amazing thing. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward the heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. And he prints in Manoah and his wife's minds his greatness, a picture of his greatness, and they fall to the ground. And then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And he said, we're surely going to die because we've seen the Lord. Same response as Gideon. We surely will die. But his wife said to him, and this is important, three if, uh, not three ifs, but an if and two nors, which kind of go together. If the Lord had desired to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear any the things like this at this time. The reason I point this out is that I want to say in response, in in, in God's response to Manoah, he declares to him his wonder, his character, his incomprehensibility, his, his inability to be known. But therein, he is also declaring his character to Manoah. We also see in these closing verses that while Manoah despairs and fears and is on the ground ready to die, we see that his wife speaks to him of God's character. She points him toward that character by faith. She grabs her sort of verbally, you know, her husband by the collar and helps him understand. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying while he's down and fearing death, she says, no, he, God has made a promise to us. God has accepted our offering. God, if he was planning on killing us, he wouldn't have done these things. We can stand up. She knows his character. God will not make a vow and then go back on it. If he has promised something, he will surely bring it to pass. She knows his character and is living in line with who he says he is. Those two things are always in harmony, who he says he is and his character. As it applies to our parenting, we'll end here, 
Rules are not enough in themselves. Our children must come to see and know and live in line with who God says he is. And this means that we must present our children with a picture of the greatness and the glory and the splendor and the holiness and the bigness and the all-knowingness of God, which means that we need to see and know his character ourselves. That's obvious. If we are to present this, we can't teach something or imitate something or help our children see something that we are not seeing for ourselves. We need to be like Manoah's great and faithful wife who cites God's character to her husband when he thought that they were on the threshold of death. He should be the one who infinitely inspires us. God should be the one who infinitely inspires us and holds us accountable, even as parents. It's my hope and desire that as we continue in the things we've learned and become convicted of, as 2 Timothy says, that we look downward to our children as well. I hope that we don't have just hope and faith for how God will use us, but I hope that we have hope and faith for how God will use our children, as we said at the beginning. What a treasure God has given to us. And we must be faithful to steward that well. They have work that needs to continue to advance. But for this to happen, we need to remember these lessons on parenting. What we feed ourselves will nurture our children. And it is right and proper that we as parents maintain expectations and have rules and prohibitions for our children but that those rules and those prohibitions aren't the end, that they flow in line with knowing and living in the greatness of God's character. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the story of Samson, for Manoah's great wife, and for Manoah, and for some of the lessons that we have to learn about how to be strong as parents as we raise children. Pray that you would be glorified in our lives, in the life of this church. We lift this prayer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.